You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. It is a joy to stand under God's word with you all this morning. We'll look at the first 12 verses. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread They had forgotten to bring any bread, and Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12, and they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Family, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing now in our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning, and we come to the 16th chapter in this great history of redemption. Beginning, and you'll remember, beginning with the end of chapter 13, a major transition happened in the gospel of Matthew. The emphasis, the urgency, and the direction of the narrative became aimed at the cross of Christ. In other words, after chapter 13, Jesus is making his way toward Calvary. And now, starting in chapter 16, on his way to the cross, Jesus becomes laser-focused on one thing. On his way to the cross, beginning now in chapter 16, he becomes laser-focused on the development and the character of his people, the church. He is very interested in the church, how they will be distinctly different. In fact, in the section we'll cover next week, Jesus lays out the essential foundation of the church, which is our confession regarding who Jesus is. It is a most famous section next week where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? 
And others, you know, they say, oh, well, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah. Some say you're a major or minor prophet. But then Jesus says, but what about the church? What about you? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? But before we get to the confession of the church next week, in our text this week, Jesus focuses on the distinction of his church as it relates to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, he does not want his church to be like them. He references the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus brings to the surface what must be a distinct difference between his followers, the church, and the religious authority of his day. He doesn't want just another sect of Judaism. That is not what is coming in the new covenant. He wants something distinctly different. In fact, in our text this morning, we see three ways in which the church must be different. First, the church must be different in what we desire from God. The church must be different in what we desire from God. Second, the church must be different in our estimation of what is most urgent. And third, and finally, the church must be different in where we look for salvation. The church must be different in desire. Church must be different in urgency. And the church must be different in where we look for salvation. First, the church must be different in what we desire from God. In verses one through four, the Pharisees and the Sadducees repeat a tactic, at least the Pharisees tried this tactic back in chapter 12. You'll remember back in chapter 12, verse 38, 39, they said, show us a sign, Jesus. Do something truly spectacular. And here they sort of regurgitate the same tactic. Look at verse one again. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Again, at face value, we said this back in chapter 12, but again, at face value, this looks like a ridiculous request because Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's just fed 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. Beyond this, Jesus has turned water into wine. He's healed lepers. He's restored withered hands. He's raised the dead in Jairus' daughter. Really? Show us something spectacular. What more do these leaders need to see in order for them to believe? What else is there? Again, in rabbinic traditions, there was a distinction. This is important. There was a distinction between signs and miracles. To be sure, miracles were a type of sign which pointed to the hand of God in a particular instance, but a true sign according to some rabbinic traditions, apparently the Sadducees and the Pharisees, a true sign, a heavenly sign, would be irrefutable. I mean, after all, we don't know if you had a bread merchant sort of hidden in the background who pulled up with three or four carts, and that's how you pulled that off. After all, we don't know if you actually know a wine merchant, or I don't even know what a wine guy is called, or, and he was just kind of in the back, and he was offloaded. Like, we don't know for sure. But if you show us a sign from heaven, a heavenly sign, that would be irrefutable. That'd be spectacular. 
In other words, we've seen you do miraculous things on earth. But if you're truly who you say you are, give us a sign from heaven which would make your authority irrefutable. And here's the point. They want something more. They're not satisfied with what Jesus has offered. They want something more. And of course, Jesus responds in verse two. Look at verse two and following. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to exegete. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation, he repeats what he said in chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. He denied their request. Why? Why? Was was it because he couldn't do it? They finally tied him up and he couldn't produce what they were asking for? Of course not. Jesus' Jesus's command over the spiritual realm and the physical realm has been clearly noted in Matthew's gospel. Well, perhaps Jesus knew their motivation was to test him and so he just says, I'm not gonna be tested here. No, perhaps that may be true, but I think more is happening here. More is happening in our text. I think Jesus denied them because they desired something that he was not willing to give. They desired spectacle and not mercy. They desired the spectacular and not mercy. See, what was the fundamental difference between this miracle that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking for and every other miracle that Jesus was willing to do, what's the one difference? One word, mercy. Jesus never did a miracle in the Bible for mere spectacle. Even when he did a miraculous healing for the sake of mercy and it was gonna be the raising of Jairus' daughter, he makes everybody leave the room. And you and I, as observers, we're like, no, 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 keep everybody in there. That will help you out, Jesus, because then they will go tell everybody once they see this. Why? Why doesn't Jesus do this? Because he's not about the spectacular. He's about mercy. In the economy of God, mercy is more powerful than spectacle. The proud look for something or someone sensational to convince them of greatness and authority. But the humble don't look for something sensational. The humble look for mercy. When you're in your darkest hour of need, you don't need the heavens to be rearranged. You need God's mercy. The humble know that there is more transforming power in the mercy of God than a thousand galaxies combined. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that it is the meek that will inherit the earth. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on Matthew writes this, quote, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the other miracles of Christ simply won't do. They must have a sign of their own choosing. 
They despise those signs which revealed the necessity of the sick and the sorrowful. And they insisted upon a sign which would gratify the curiosity of the proud. End quote. Do you see? The church must be different in what we desire from God. Anyone can desire spectacle. I remember being just a a young boy flipping through channels. Lord, if I land on something that talks about you, then I'll believe. If I go outside in the clouds, sort of rearrange and and show me something that says something holy, then, then I'll believe. Show me something sensational. Now, the church must be different in what we desire from God in evil. Jesus goes on to say, in evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But Christians desire and seek after the mercy of God because it's the mercy of God that houses the power to transform a human heart. Something sensational can transform your moment. You want to pull out your camera and take pictures of it, maybe post it on social media, but it's gone the next day. But what transforms a human heart? Not the spectacle, the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God descending upon your life is better than a thousand galaxies being rearranged before your very eyes. The church must be different. Jesus didn't come to earth to impress the proud. He came to earth to grant mercy to the lost. Jesus goes on to say, the only sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, how unremarkable is that? The sign of the prophet Jonah, why would he say that? Because Jonah was sent reluctantly, remember. Jesus was unreluctant in his sending, but Jonah was sent to a people undeserving. And what does he preach to the the Ninevites? Mercy. Forgiveness. Compassion from God. And like Jonah, Jesus is sent from heaven with a message to other sinners. What's the message? Mercy. Come to me, all you who labor in our heaven lady, and I will give you rest, not just for your physical space, but for your soul. Mercy is the offer from God. Mercy, not spectacle. The irony of this scene is almost palpable. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking for a sign from heaven and yet they can't even see that heaven has come down in the person and work of Jesus Christ and is standing right in front of them. The God-man, the man from heaven is standing before them and they're saying, show us a sign from heaven. The irony is palpable. As we think about how this applies I was thinking about this in my own life. We have a theology that says God is here. Right? He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But he's especially present for the believer. He is the God who is with us, always, from the beginning to the end. He's the God who does not forsake his own. He is here. God is here. He's with us. And yet we often can't see or perceive him. Why? Because oftentimes, like the Pharisees, we're looking for something sensational. When God is offering mercy, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they shall see God. How do you get a pure heart? Can the rearranging of the galaxies give you a pure heart? Can the raining down of manna from heaven give you a pure heart? Can the mercy of God give you a pure heart? Yes, it can. Blessed are those with a pure heart, for they shall see God. So that's number one. The church must be different in what we desire from God. We don't desire mere spectacle. We desire mercy. The church must be different in that regard. Second, and of course this is related, the church must be different in our estimation of what is most urgent in the world. Now remember, what is Jesus doing in chapter 16? Don't forget, he's gathering his church and he's separating them from the worldview of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and saying, you're going to be different. This is going to be a different movement. I want to show you how different it is. First, it's different in what we desire from God, and now it's different in what we view as the church as most urgent in the world. Look at verses 5 and following. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Jesus initiates this whole thing, verse 6, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they begin, verse 7, they begin discussing it among themselves, saying, oh, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it, verse 11, that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread then he repeats himself, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So this is, all, this is a comical moment. The disciples forget to bring bread, knowing the needs of their stomach, Jesus inserts a greater urgency and that is the need to guard their hearts against the sinful teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He knows the needs of their stomach. Stomachs are growling, oh, we forgot to bring bread. And then he, Jesus moves to a greater urgency and that is the need to protect their hearts from something that can spread. He says, beware of buying, or they think that Jesus is saying, oh wow, should we beware of buying bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees? Like, is their leaven not as good as the leaven we should be thinking about? Like, not only do disciples panic and forget about the Lord's provision in the past, and this is comical until we actually think about it. I can't tell you how many times in my own life, and I'm embarrassed to say it, where I have pleaded for the Lord to grant me mercy and rescue, and he does, and he delivers. And in the very next trial, I'll forget that he ever came through in the past. We have a remarkable capacity for forgetfulness on this side of glory. We do. 
And so we're like, ha ha, the disciples, you guys didn't, you know, you didn't see, you fed like thousands of people. How could you be concerned about bread? We are, we are with them. I'll be concerned about bread on Monday after preaching this sermon. We have a remarkable capacity for forgetfulness. But not only did the disciples panic because they forgot about the Lord's provision, but they also forgot what was more urgent than food. See, part of how we show mercy, show the mercy of God, is to, like Christ, come alongside others and help meet their physical needs. We provide, this is an essential function of the church. We provide hot meals and warm clothing for those in need. Like Christ did, we do. However, meeting felt needs, listen, is not the gospel. Meeting felt needs is a fruit of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. That's what theological liberalism will have us think, that just feeding people and clothing them, that's the gospel. Stop this doctrinal stuff and start feeding people. It's not the gospel. It's a fruit of the gospel. It's an essential fruit of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Now, the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, comes down and lives the life that we couldn't live, dies the death that we should have died, and three days later rises from the dead and gives us forgiveness from God and therefore reconciliation with God. That's the gospel. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees missed. They thought their external adherence to the law of Moses was adequate to justify them before God. But what they failed to see was that the mercy of God behind every Old Testament law and ritual, they failed to see that all of those old covenant mercies were culminating and collapsing on one single offspring of Abraham, Yeshua Adonai, Jesus the Lord. And because their hearts were full of pride and self-sufficiency, they couldn't see their urgent need, their urgent need for the grace of forgiveness and fellowship with God. And so do you see what Jesus is doing. He's taking the less urgent need, the hunger of their bellies, to teach them about this hunger and need for, to guard their hearts against the leaven of the Pharisees. Their sinful teaching blinds their hearers and leads them away from the Messiah. And here's the scary part. Leaven, you can't see it. I don't know. Is yeast leaven? Is that the same thing? I think it is. You can see. I'm not a cook or anything like that. You can buy yeast in the store, right? You can see it, you can see it. But once you mix it in, you can't see it, right? So what is Jesus saying? When he says beware of it, he is saying it's, it's this small, invisible thing, but it doesn't just stay compartmentalized. Have you noticed this about sin? Sin doesn't stay put. It doesn't obey. You can't manage it. It spreads like yeast and it moves through the hole. It starts on one end and it will not be satisfied until it moves through the hole and you can't see it. It's imperceptible. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the, 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 the yeast or the sinful teaching of the Pharisee, it starts small. And if you're only worried about your urgency is not the heart, but other things, you're going to miss the spread of false doctrine in your heart and in the church. And what is the false doctrine? What is the scary teaching of the scribes or, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Jesus isn't enough. 
Jesus isn't enough. Show us a sign. We need something else. Jesus plus something. And if we're not careful, we're not guarding our hearts, the, the sin, the leaven of the Pharisees will spread. So the church must be different in what we desire from God. The church must be different in what we deem as most urgent in the world and, and in our hearts. And finally, and therefore, listen, the church must be different in where we look for salvation. Now this point comes sort of as an implication from the text. It's not as detailed in the narrative. But this is the first time in Matthew's gospel where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are grouped together in their opposition to Jesus. Okay, why is that important? It's important because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were diametrically opposed to one another. They came on they came from opposite ends of the political and theological spectrum. And yet they find a common enemy in Jesus. To be a first century reader of Matthew's gospel and to hear of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together would have been jaw-dropping. This morning with Pastor Alec, I was trying to find an analogy for this because it's not hitting. I can tell from all your faces that this is like, so what? <laughs> so what? I remember the first time when I saw Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush on TV together. Do you remember this? They're sitting next to each other. Some of you are too young for this. Now I can say that, I guess. I'm almost 40. They're sitting next to each other, and I remember turning up the phone. What's this? What could they possibly be agreeing upon? They were, they were just diametrically opposed. They saw the world through different lenses, and yet they're coming together for some cause. Right? And I think it was world hunger and, and these kinds of things. It was like, oh, that's great. We all kind of got that. Good for them, you know? Two enemies sitting down for a common cause. It's not that outrageous. It's even more outrageous. This would be like Donald Trump and Joe, and, uh, Joe Biden showing up for an, a, de a debate and yet they're agreeing upon something in the debate. All of us would stop everything we're doing to go, are they working together for something? It's more like that. So a first century reader, for the first time, reading that the Sadducees and the Pharisees have a common goal, that would have been jaw-dropping. What's their common goal? Get rid of Jesus. Get rid of Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees would have been the conservative wing of Judaism. The Sadducees would have been the more liberal wing of Judaism, the more secular wing of Judaism. Don't agree on virtually anything, but Jesus needs to go. Why? That's the big question. Why, all of a sudden, are these two enemies now together in their opposition of Jesus? Why? because he refused, Jesus refused to fight with them, and he refused to fight like them. What's more, he took their power away by condemning both of them as insufficient in lacking true salvation. He cut them all down. 
The Pharisees would have sympathized with the zealots that salvation comes through the overthrow of Rome and the establishment of a pure Jewish nation. Make Israel pure, they would have said. We need to be pure. And that would usher in the coming of Messiah. We need to be pure. We need to conserve the law, not do away with it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were less inclined to rebel against Roman pagans and more inclined to include them. They were more open-minded and progressive in their theology. We're going to usher in the Messianic age by being more open-minded, not closed-minded. You see? And then a man comes along named Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be the Messiah of Israel and absolutely disrupts both worldviews. He absolutely disrupts both views of power and salvation. He says, you both are wrong. That's why they're both against him. That's why they find a common enemy. That's why they're sitting together, stomaching being in the same room because they realize that Jesus is dashing to pieces both worldviews. No, Jesus says, there is no salvation in the overthrow of Rome, the political enemy of Israel, and no, there is no salvation in the secularization or progressive thinking. The human race is not going to get better on its own. Jesus says no to both. Instead, sinful corruption runs through every human heart, conservative or liberal, right or left. True rest you can only look like giving up, not by human will or exertion. See, despite their political and theological differences, the sin of the Pharisee is the same sin as the Sadducee. They are twins from the same womb and they don't even know it. They both see Jesus as insufficient. They both see Jesus as insufficient. And all throughout human history, when you see the militancy of the right or the militancy of the left, you'll find at the core that they've abandoned, if they were ever Christian, abandoned the core mission of the gospel and they saw Jesus as not enough to accomplish their ends. He's insufficient. However, the church must be different. We must be different. The church must be aware of the sin of the Pharisee and the Sadducee because we understand, don't we? Do we understand this? That the gospel, that salvation comes not through religious conservatism or liberal secularization. Instead, as Christians, we perceive power and salvation to come on a completely different highway altogether. We read this in our call to worship this morning. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 1. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ what? What? Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach a crucified Messiah. That's our power? That's weakness. That's foolish. That doesn't make any sense. Where's the saber rattling? Where's the chariots? Where's the war horse? Where's the power to overtake Rome? At least Pilate. Surely we can get Pilate out of here. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, the church must be different. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Beloved, we must be different. The church must be different in where we look for salvation, rescue, deliverance. The greatest display of power in all the universe came when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave his power away. Don't you see Satan, sin, and hell were conquered not by the might of the sword or the strength of the chariot, but were conquered by the love of God as Christ, the Son of God, lays down his life for his friends, his enemies. That changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It changes everything we view about fighting, about power, about influence, about how to win. Our boast is a cross. Our great hope today is not the moral conservation of a culture like the Pharisees, though we can pray for this. Our great hope today is not the moral conservation of a culture, though we can pray for this. Nor is our great hope the belief that things will get better over time. Human beings are essentially good. That is not true, but we can pray for renewal and justice in the world. No, the church must be prophetic in a culture confused about where salvation comes from and what true power looks like. The church must be different. We preach Christ crucified. And if you preach Christ crucified, you will come up with the same enemies he had. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were together for the first time in opposition to the gospel. The church must be different in our desire. The church must be different in our urgency. And the church must be different in where we look for salvation. Where are you this morning looking for rescue? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need help. I need help. If I'm being honest, I'm pulled. Worldviews pull me. I see, I hear good arguments on either side. I, feel, I hear horrible arguments too, but I, we're pulled. And we're, we're inundated by, on what we should desire, on what is most urgent, on where true rescue comes from. We're inundated with all kinds of worldview and influence. Oh, Spirit, would you break through all the noise? Would you break through all the noise and help us to cling to this message that has changed the world over and over and over again, Christ crucified? Change us individually and then use us to change the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.